And just want to take a second and thank Policy Genius. They're supporting today's episode of Success Story. I know we all have kids. We all have families we want to take care of. And I personally check something off major on my to-do list, life insurance. It's a tough topic. It's really hard to think about, but it's so important. And the hard part was sorting through all the options. Luckily, I found Policy Genius. Policy Genius is an online insurance marketplace that makes getting life insurance surprisingly easy. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Now, knowing my family's protected brings me incredible peace of mind. Don't put off this important decision. Check life insurance off your to-do list in no time with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Welcome to Success Story, the most useful podcast in the world. I'm your host, Scott D. Clary. The Success Story podcast is part of the HubSpot podcast network. The HubSpot podcast network has other great podcasts you should go check out, like Being Boss, hosted by Emily Thompson. Now, with the holidays just around the corner, you're probably thinking, what's next for you in the new year? What other shows are you going to listen to to level yourself up? Well, on the Success Story podcast, I interview a lot of entrepreneurs, and I usually dive deep into the creative aspects of building a business. So if you are a creative, a creative business owner, or you're thinking about eventually becoming one, which at some point everybody kind of has to be because you have to be a little bit creative in how you build a business, how you market a business, and how you sell your product, all of that does require some creativity, but also for people that are hyper-focused on the creative niche. You may be interested in Being Boss, hosted by Emily Thompson. Being Boss is an exploration of not only what it means, but what it takes to be a boss as a creative business owner. If you are into some of the following topics, you're gonna love this show. Project management and building systems for creatives, freelancers, or side hustlers, opening a retail store, rituals that inspire and evoke creativity, and taking time off as a business owner to focus on yourself, your creativity, and upskilling, You need to listen to Being Boss. They cover all these topics and more. You can listen to Being Boss on any of your favorite podcasting platforms or at HubSpot.com slash podcast network. This is David Cicerelli, founder and CEO of Voices.com, the largest marketplace for voice talent in the world. Voices.com has over 1 million members. They've received $20 million in funding to date. Numbers wise, they have users from 160 countries and 5,000 jobs are posted every single month. Their clients include marquee names like Microsoft, Shopify, Hulu, Discovery, and many others. Uh, David is responsible for setting the vision, executing the growth strategy, uh, creating and ensuring that there is a vibrant culture, managing the company on a day-to-day basis. He is frequently published in outlets such as the Globe and Mail, Forbes, and the Wall Street Journal. Some of the things we spoke about, we spoke about David's journey, how and why he started Voices.com, some of the things he fumbled with when he was first starting Voices.com, lessons learned while he competed with hundreds of startups trying to make a name for themselves in this category. And also, that was at the beginning, how he still competes, how he still maintains market share, how he still maintains the fact that he's the incumbent in this particular category, and how he stops himself from being disrupted. We speak about growth 
marketing and scaling on a small budget. Right now they have $20 million in funding. They didn't have that at the beginning, how he had to be creative about evangelizing, scaling, growing, marketing the company from the ground up just with uh, himself and his partner and also how anybody can compete with giants by simplifying their business and how when his business got bloated, when it was getting big, he realized that trimming some of the fat was the best way to continue to scale, to grow. And he speaks about some strategies for simplifying to expedite to increase the growth of your business. So some great entrepreneurial lessons. David is an exceptional founder and entrepreneur. So I really hope you enjoy. This is David Cicerelli, co-founder and CEO of Voices.com. All right. Well, Scott, thanks. Thanks for having me and great to be here. I mean, yeah, origin story. I mean, I think every entrepreneur probably has, you know, a kernel of where that idea came from. Maybe it was your childhood or some event that happened in your youth. And for me, it was growing up all around music and sound. I think at the time you didn't appreciate, you know, why your parents put you in, you know, piano lessons or, uh, you know, drumming or learning to play guitar. And for me, it was kind of all of the above. And uh, I also really loved the, some of the sound and kind of uh, equipment, you know, sound equipment that we had around the house. I mean, there's this old shortwave radio where I could tune in to radio stations around the world, even hearing people speak other languages. So I thought that was really cool. Uh, we had this old record player where I could listen to uh, not only like music, um, but also recordings of the human voice, people telling stories. I was just really cap uh, captivated by that. So when it came time to find kind of a post-secondary kind of after uh, high school, you know, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? I also ultimately decided on this audio engineering program that kind of blended the art and the tech and the music. And uh, it was there where I learned how to record and edit and produce music uh, in a recording studio. And I just remember on, um, and it's a story I actually tell for new employees joining Voices, and I remember being there on day one, just like a new employee and kind of like day one, week one, and you're in that orientation. And the teacher from the school got up in front of the class that was this big mixing console at the front, you know, that looked like the bridge of the Starship Enterprise, very intimidating for all of us newbies, and this lecture theater and holding up two things in the hand. One was a tennis ball and one was a microphone. And just saying, if you don't know the difference between these two, don't sweat it. We're going to teach you everything. And that's actually the same message that I shared to new employees uh, joining Voices around kind of learning about the industry and how the business works. But for me, after I graduated from that program, I actually opened up a small recording studio of my own um, in London, Canada. It's about an hour outside of Toronto, hour and a half outside of Toronto. And uh, I actually got my name on the local newspaper on my birthday of all days. And that's when, uh, lo and behold, it was actually Stephanie, who's now my dear wife, of course, and co-founder in Voices.com. And at the time, she was a singer. She'd sing at weddings and funerals and other special events. And uh, she was also in the music program at uh, the Western University. So uh, her mom actually read this newspaper article and um, said, why don't you go down to the studio uh, and... Uh, actually get your singing repertoire recorded and then you can have some marketing collateral that you could actually hand out to people you know maybe on cd so i'm kind of you're we're going back more than 10 years here when you actually used to hand out cds so stephanie came down to the studio chaperoned of course by her mother um and we ended up uh doing those uh, recordings but because of that same newspaper article there were other small businesses in the city that wanted uh to hire a female voice for some radio commercials 
for some phone system recordings. And I only knew one girl in the city. So I gave Stephanie a ring and I said, look, at I'll, I've got a gig, a couple gigs. I'll be the engineer and you be the female voice talent. And uh, that was, in effect, not only uh, my proposal of how to work together, but I think it uh, served uh, double duty as, as my marriage proposal because- uh, <laughs> You got a whole uh, bunch it, of work. <laughs> we, we eventually, I think I married my first customer. It's really what happened in that one. But uh, we ended up, you know, of course, getting uh, working together really, really well and launching what became, you know, kind of pivoting, uh, which is sometimes perhaps an overused term, but I think we just kind of moved forward in the same direction was me being the engineer, Stephanie being the talent to saying, you know, let's get a website together. So we actually went to the local public library, took out web design for dummies. And, Are you sure this was just uh, 10 years ago? This is, yeah. this feels like long. <laughs> uh, well, maybe, maybe 15 or so. Yeah. And, and I mean, listen, there was nothing that like, you know, you think of nowadays, yeah. you have access to WordPress, you have access to like Wix or other co content management systems, Shopify, if you're doing e-commerce, I mean, there really wasn't anything that was nearly that mature. So you have to hand code your your own websites basically in HTML, and that's that's what we did. Um, and then soon thereafter, realized after putting the site up, there were uh, freelance talent, you know, uh, people who spoke other languages, uh, had other accents, located in different parts of North America, that would contact us and say, "How do I get on this website? You know, I see you got a few names there. How do I how do I get listed?" And we always just said, "Yeah, sure, sign up, sign up for free. Um, give us some contact information. We'll build a page for you." And then concurrently, there would be clients uh, who would be, you know, at advertising agencies, small video production companies that would be saying, I see this person on your website. It's a link to click and play and listen, but how do I actually hire them? How do I get in touch with them? And that was, um, I refer to that as the aha moment, right? I mean, every entrepreneur has them. Um, sometimes it's like the epiphany to realize like the world just seems to kind of click. And for, for, for us, that was, wow, why are we still in the recording business? Why don't we take a step back and facilitate these connections? And that's really at the heart of what a two-sided marketplace or an online marketplace is, which is a super hot business model nowadays of bringing together buyers and sellers, creators and you know, consumers, if you will. Um, and so you know, we, can, we can unpack that as well, but um, that is in effect the business model of bringing these two parties together for a service. And for us, it's a voiceover service and more recently looking at other creative services like music production and translation and audio editing, these other kind of complementary. But that's been the business uh, you know, idea from its inception. And we just stuck with it all of this time um, to where we are today. So I want to, uh, there is things that I want to, uh, first of all, thank you for the story. I appreciate it. And I, and I, I love seeing the evolution of business ideas. Now let's, let's say the first, I want to talk about creator, you know, this marketplace, um, this double, this two-sided marketplace, but okay, let's even talk about the domain because I think that's the, the very interesting piece. That's a very premium domain, right? There's no more, uh, I don't think you can get a, a single word domain in the English language anymore. So no, not like a dictionary word. That's for sure. No, um, no. You know, we actually started as, uh, as interactive voices.com, which is kind of a mouthful. Um, you know, it served us well for the first kind of like four or five years. I think we got up to about 10,000 registered users, had clients from NBC and Microsoft. So, I mean, it, it definitely got the thing going. So, you know, maybe first point is like business leaders and entrepreneurs, 
don't feel that, you know, don't let that being a blocking factor. And like, I can't launch until I have the perfect name. Um, I think it's better to launch fast, get feedback from the market and validate. And then, mm-hmm. hey, it's worth investing in that premium uh, premium domain. So for us, it was interactive voices. Your, you know, your profile, uh, Scott, if you, if you had one, would have been scott.interactivevoices.com. So again, gotcha. okay, not great. Um, but, and, and it's funny because people would misspell it. They'd think it was voice interactive, like get the words flipped around. The, the dumbest um, mistakes, but it's still, it. <laughs> yeah. it's singular, plural. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and, um, at my, you know, it was funny, like one lady even kind of, you know, she complained to us, uh, that she had to type it out every time. And it was like, her fingers were getting tired. I'm like, you can bookmark the page, you know, like <laughs> there are easier ways to get to the site. Um, but nonetheless, you know, we realized maybe this is more of a hindrance cause it kind of pigeonholed us into like new media, interactive media and like, but voiceover is like a multi-billion dollar global market. Really nowadays, anytime you hear the human voice, somebody either went into a studio to create, to record or they've actually went into a studio to train one of these synthetic voice systems that sometimes you hear on like TikTok as an example, yeah. um, where somebody's voice is actually um, generating that computerized voice. So either way, people are behind uh, everything, yeah. all the voices you hear. And so it, it was a much bigger market. I was on a bit of a quest to change the domain name um, and, and our address. And I actually went, uh, I looked at Vox.com and Voxio voxy you know dropping vowels and just trying to find something shorter and tighter and i put in a bid of actually a hundred thousand dollars for vox.com which uh we ended up losing the auction uh and that uh, of course went to vox media um but you know that i realized well maybe rather than like a name a wholesale like rebranding what perhaps if it was like more of a name a shortening a simplification if you will and what if we just cut out the interactive part and we're just like voices and I did what probably most of you have done is you go to Google, you type it in and like, see if there's even a website registered. Yeah. And it was, uh, it was a site, it was a medical journal called Silencing the Critical Voices in Your Head. And it was registered in 1998, hadn't been updated since 2000. So again, a good, I think seven years since it's even been touched. And um, I actually reached out to a lawyer who we just met and I said, do you think you can send this, do the who is lookup, right? The reverse lookup. Yeah. And send this fellow an email and ask him if he would sell the name and if so, what price. And he came back with the price of 50,000, uh, which was half of uh, what the auction was with Vox. So I realized, well, we're already ahead, um, but I didn't have 50,000 on hand. So I went to all of the banks and made the pitch of, hey, we're, we're building, rebranding and building this new website. And they're like, so you're buying servers? Are you going to hire a bunch of people? I'm like, no, just just a domain name. And they're like, can't you go and just register those like off the shelf, you know, from GoDaddy or network solutions or wherever. I'm like, no, they're not really available like that. Um, And so I appreciated the value in that. So uh, the lawyer actually taught me an important lesson, which was everyone was saying no. And uh, he's like, well, don't take no for an answer. Uh, Look at the, the seller wanted, it was willing to sell and they named their price. So let's go back with a counter offer. How can we meet that? And so we came back with $30,000, which was, uh, we divided into payments, uh, you know, $5,000 a quarter over the next six quarters. Uh, and with that, he went for the deal. So for $5,000 uh, that I 
you know, probably foolishly did a cash advance on our credit card to kind of get the, get the money to go. Um, <laughs> and whatever it takes, whatever it takes, right? Yeah. Name. Yeah, I got the name, which is, I mean, listen, looking back though, Scott, I'd say that was like one of the defining moments that, you know, really changed the trajectory. We went from like this obscure kind of quirky mouthful of a name to voices. And it just sounds like we've been around forever. Um, the blessing in disguise out of that, all of that as well was that um, Google at the time was really, I'm going to say overweighting the age of the domain. Cause it was like one of these factors you can't really manipulate in, in the search uh, mm-hmm. engine results kind of factors. And um, we ended up just doubling our traffic virtually overnight. Like we just kind of pointed, uh, you know, redirect same website, same pages, all the content exactly the same, just on a new domain. And the traffic doubled over that weekend where we made that implementation uh, and just hadn't looked back ever since. And, other like byproducts like organic traffic up, you know, journalists and reporters from CNN, Los Angeles Times, you know, they're doing, they've written stories about the industry or celebrities and doing voice acting or, you know, um, you know, Alexa or the first Amazon Kindle had this like voice that would kind of read out to you with kind of the precursor actually to Alexa. And whenever there was like some tech story with voice, they'd do research and then reach out for comment. So we got a lot of these other knock-on effects that I totally were unquantifiable at the time. But I think that just shows you that sometimes you just didn't need to take that step out in faith. Um, because if you really see the potential in something, you just need to take that step. I'm curious where your head was at when you made that. So yeah, it wasn't 100,000. It wasn't 50,000. It was 30,000, 5,000 a quarter. Were you revenue generating at this point? I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Masterworks. Most millionaires do this. Listen, after interviewing over 200 entrepreneurs and investors, highly successful people, I've discovered they all do one thing in common. To become a millionaire, you have to invest like one, but that's easier said than done. Because the truth is, investments in luxury real estate deals, lucrative pre-IPO deals, and hedge fund products are closed off to 97% of Americans. The odds are stacked against you. But there's a new app, that lets everybody invest like the ultra wealthy. It unlocks a massive $1.7 trillion opportunity that to date has been closed off to investors. It's one that millionaires use to not only grow their wealth, but protect it. And for good reason, this asset beat the S&P 500 by 174% from 1995 to 2020. What I'm about to say might surprise you, but what I'm talking about is contemporary art. Masterworks, which is New York City's newest $1 billion unicorn, gives you the opportunity to invest in the same type of art as the world's richest individuals, including works by legends like Banksy, Basquiat, and Warhol. Demand for Masterworks offering is higher than ever. Luckily, I've partnered with Masterworks to get VIP access to skip to the front. To secure your spot, head to masterworks.io slash success story. That is masterworks.io slash success story. You can skip to the head of the line and start investing in contemporary art that the ultra wealthy invest in. To see important disclosures, go to masterworks.io slash disclaimer. Where was the business yes, financially yes, we when were. you made that And part? the business, so the business model um, at the time, which I mean, it's slightly evolved since then, but it was a, it was a membership based site. So the voice talent, could uh, sign up for free 
or they could upgrade to a premium subscription, which uh, we started at $99 a year. And, you know, every couple of years, kind of four or five years, we, you know, increased by another, uh, you know, $100 or so. Um, it's now $500 a year subscription. But at that time, you know, there is great recurring revenue that comes from a membership-based site. And mm -hmm. what are the talents subscribing to? It's really to gain uh, access to those job opportunities that are posted by clients. Um, so, hey, for a uh, really, uh, frankly, a nominal membership free in advance, I now am participating in a marketplace where uh, kind of as a platform, Voices is bringing all of these buyers, you know, as I say, from ad agencies, from corporate marketing departments that someone in, you know, maybe a major center might have access to or have like that traditional talent agent. But if you're really talented, but you don't live in New York or LA, how are you going to kind of break in or break through into the industry? And so I think we unlocked a lot of potential and, and, and welcome new talent on the platform because that, you know, value prop, if you will, resonated with them. Great. Create an online profile, get access to clients and hopefully be a, a, a venue where I can build my career. And and I also want to before we keep going down this 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 uh, this story, I want to understand how did you even scale the first like how did you get the first customers on the platform? How did you get your first thousand customers yeah. on the platform? And then I want to understand after you switch that domain, you can talk numbers or not. It's up to you. But what your MRR was pre-domain and then post-domain, and how that kind of helped you ramp up? Yeah, sure. So um, the Pre-MRR would probably be something like, I think that the first goal was always to get to 8,000 a month because that would be the 10,000 or 100,000 ish a year. Um, yeah. And then, um, so that was certainly kind of a pre, I think we had like one other employee. We did not pay ourselves, Stephanie and I very much at all. Um, and I think we got up to about $500,000 in annual, uh, annual recurring revenue. Um, and that was, you know, before kind of the domain and, um, you know, it's really been almost a, you know, a doubling, uh, virtually every year. And of course the law of big numbers starts to kick into place, yeah. uh, where it becomes much harder. That's why it's so admirable when you see these like big tech companies, um, or like zoom, like at the, in the kind of thick of the pandemic, like I think grew like three or 400% and you're just like, holy smokes, that must've it's, been it's quite, like quite mind, mind boggling numbers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's like, there's another thousand employees here that weren't here three months ago. No, but for yeah. us, you know, I'm not, uh, clearly a much, much smaller scale. Um, but you know, I, you know, it's, 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 uh, it was a while back, but I would definitely say in kind of like that, you know, doubling, um, kind of pre before and after. So to get, you know, these, the, a two-sided marketplace or, um, you know, a, a, you know, an online marketplace, kind of these terms are used a little bit interchangeably. Um, they're actually really difficult businesses to pull off because they require what's uh, known. You have to solve the chicken and egg problem where you have supply. So in this case, talent, but for Airbnb, it might be rooms available for Uber. It might be ride, you know, drivers available to take you for a ride. I mean, you go down the list of, you know, open table. It's like seats and tables available at restaurants. That's the supply. And then you have the demand. Um, people looking to make a booking or to hire a talent or a freelancer. And the supply is not going to show up 
unless there's enough demand, but the demand's not going to go if they don't think anyone's going to be there to fulfill their request. And so there's a couple approaches. Um, one is, and the one that we used is um, what I is kind of like this equal balanced approach where Stephanie and I uh, divided and conquered. Stephanie was all the vo always the voice talent, you know, gal, and she built relationships with talent, reaching out one at a time and saying, you know, literally by email, going to their website, just searching around, going to the website and inviting people onto the platform one at a time. And my job was to reach out to those clients, which I cold called, like old school cold called uh, 10,000 calls um, over the first kind of like first five years. I just made all the calls to as many people as I could finding, you know, lists or directories or, you know, conferences. There's somebody was, you know, uh, sponsoring. I would just give them a call um, and invite them. That was the whole thing was just invite, invite, invite. And it would be at their discretion whether or not they, they wanted to. We, 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 um, you know, wanted to sign up, uh, if you will. So it was, it, it wasn't some, some platforms go all in on one side and then shift their direction. I think for us, as we started, it was each side very incremental. Um, and uh, more recently, where we expanded from just voiceover into these uh, new complementary categories, as I was mentioning, you know, audio production and music in particular and, and translation. Here, the approach was a little bit different. And it, it's kind of like, let's go to the playbook initially. We started with, I think, a few hundred talent before the first clients would come on and post jobs. But maybe not quite that, maybe a few, you know, up to around 100. And so by that same product, you actually need a lot less supply than you would think because let's just get enough that we can fulfill that first request. Uh, and, and just so, a, just at one point, I just want to ask quickly, sorry, before you keep going, just to clarify something. Course. When when you cold call these 10,000 people or when you're reaching out cold email, you're just getting everybody on, like you're again, that, that Paul Graham doing things that don't scale mentality. Like that's like the step one, but you're not, yes. you're not charging these people. You're just bringing them in so that you can keep, you have that sort of that, uh, that baseline that you can now, exactly. uh, now charge and Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, but I exactly. don't want to clarify. And, okay. And so, yeah, no, a great point. And, and, and it is exactly that, like it did not scale and actually have a funny story about that, that when we went to expand to these new categories, we're like, wow, how do we, how many free, how many freelance translators do we need in order to go live? Right. And in speaking with our board member, uh, one of our board members who was a previous, uh, like SVP at Upwork, um, she's like, well, you know, we always kind of use this proxy of like 10,000 freelancers to make a category to have sufficient, was referred to as marketplace liquidity. And um, I thought seemed like a huge number to me. So that took us, we planned that it was going to take us six months. And um, by just welcoming in and inviting freelance translators and audio producers, we ended up with 50,000 translators over about a four week period. So clearly wow. there's a lot of supply, if you will, or creative talent that are out there that are wanting to participate in the gig economy. And so we re that was a huge lesson. We did mostly, I mean, the most effective means was through online advertising, you know, Facebook and Instagram, um, a bit of Google AdWords. What we tried to repeat that was successful more than 10 years ago was those one-on-one -on -one emails and just calling, you know, calling people 
um, from again, directories that we found totally did not work. Just cold, like cold sending an email saying we're expanding to an, these, these people hadn't heard of us at all. Did not work at all. We spent a couple weeks trying to do that. Um, and I think our big takeaway when we did our retrospective, which is another great, uh, you know, I think is a nicer term than a postmortem, right? It's, it's a retro of like what worked and what didn't about this launch was recognizing that um, we have to do things that scale at this point. We don't, it was just very inefficient. Um, and so that was, um, you know, that, that was just a small kind of a lesson learned. It, just because it worked in the past, doesn't mean it's going to work again in the future. So therefore try it and be quick to let it go. And that was, uh, that's what we, we found and then, and then pivoted accordingly. Do you think there's a reason why it worked? Because for an entrepreneur, that's very disheartening, right? Because for an entrepreneur, they don't have capital to test at scale. They can't pump $10,000 into AdWords and see if people are converting for a new product category. They have to call. They have to email. Yes. Was there a nuance as to why it didn't work now? I, I I have a hypothesis. I think it's very different when you're a founder making a personal plea for somebody mm -hmm. new to try something out versus, um, you know, have utmost respect for our team members. But I think they were, it was, it was an assignment, right? And it's like, okay, we're all going to send 300 emails, right? To all of these people. And it was just, it may have lacked the... Um, it was templated, like we went through and kind of like, it may have lacked the personality and the, the, you know, the, 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 not personality, like the personal approach that was like, we, I've listened to your, you know, I've reviewed your credentials. I think you would be great to the platform. Like a founder can say that with such authenticity and in a convincing manner. Um, and it's like, if you don't, you know, if this doesn't make sense to you, like, let me know you're almost like, there's such a thirst for feedback amongst founders, yeah. um, that you're willing to try whatever it is. And even if someone says no, it's like, well, help me understand why not. And so I can learn for next time. So I, I think that would probably be the nuance. S Stephanie did it such a phenomenal job the first time, the personal plea and so forth. And maybe there was something there that, that would be kind of the only, uh, you know, that, that's my hypothesis. <laughs> uh, that's a smart, it's a smart lesson too. And it's a smart lesson yeah. for founders. It's a very smart lesson for founders because sometimes they, they fall into this trap of uh, not understanding why uh, the employees don't have the same evangelism and conviction, but it'll never be. And I think that's something that you have to just be okay with. And that's something that you were running into when you actually tried to replicate the, the founder led strategy that, you know, originally got you that success. Very smart. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, it reminds me, it reminds me, Scott, of like, um, when de uh, determining where you should be spending your time as as the founder or as the CEO is uh, to do those things that only you can do. And I'll say that again, because it's so powerful. Yeah. When you're evaluating, do I do this or that? And what's most important on my, my to-do list? What are those things that only you can do? And some t that might be talking to an investor. It might be uh, leading the, you know, for new employee training, doing the, here's who we are and how, and, and sharing the vision. Here's our cultural norms. That is so powerful coming from the founder as one of those things that only you can do with that enthusiasm. Um, and compared to perhaps a number of other tasks, which might be interesting, might be, um, 
you know, they might inspire you, but you might not actually be the best person to do so. And I've found, you know, myself in a lot of those situations as well, where, and I see that in other entrepreneurs, I'm like, man, you're kind of in your own way here. Like you are preventing the company from scaling. Um, now there's things that you can do and only you can do and therefore go all in on those and let other people thrive in their own right um, and kind of stepping into your shoes there, fine. You can provide some guidance and, and mentorship along the way. But, you know, if, if four people can do it and it doesn't have to be you, then just don't, don't insert yourself unnecessarily. So I, I, I hopefully that was, uh, that's helpful to somebody listening out there. I think so. I think these are very, you, you've lived it and you've, and you've learned from, from, from obviously doing, doing probably the wrong thing more than once yeah. and then getting out of your own way. And that's, that's something that, that I think if the sooner the founder can figure that out and, and find a way to make themselves as, as redundant as possible, that's when the business can really, can really take off. Um, okay. So we talked, okay. So we spoke about, uh, okay. So how you got your first, uh, first thousand customers, uh, growth after the acquisition with, with voices.com. Um, any other, any other uh, tips for how you scaled and marketed the business? Anything innovative or different that you tried, failed at, learned lessons from that you want to talk about? Yeah, I mean, there, there's, you know, maybe just kind of breaking apart some of the um, marketplace dynamics because, you know, I, I often, you know, people yeah. speak about this and, and then even like get the questions like, well, I actually have an idea for a marketplace in like X category, you know, often the like Uber for X and it's like, okay, well, you need to understand um, how these things kind of work and what are those critical components. And there's, and there's four of them. Um, and the, the, I mean, this is really inspired to give credit uh, where it's due is from a great book called platform revolution. I highly recommend it it's by a number of like um, Boston college, MIT, you know, professors, it's really well done. Um, and they describe the difference between kind of the old traditional world pipeline business where it's very much along a value chain and everyone's trying to take their piece of the pie and, and control the information and who does what and what kind of moves through um, because they're incentivized to keep it a closed system and control their part of that value chain. So to, um, the, the, the complement to that or the modern day equivalent of that is not a pipeline, but a platform. And a platform has four components. You have the participants we talked about this, the buyers and sellers, the creators and the consumers. So even on YouTube or podcast, there are people creating and then there are people listening. Um, and or on Twitter, it's like 99.999% of the people are just consuming or reading content there versus the creators who are actually posting. Um, so who are the participants? And then those participants need to actually second, um, uh, you know, critical factor here would be sharing of information, you know, different than again, that pipeline where you're kind of all those participants are holding and trying to, you know, control the information. They actually want to, you, you want to enable as a platform, you know, owner or entrepreneur, you want to enable the sharing of information. Hence, you can go on and look at a profile of uh, a creative talent on voices and actually see all their historical information um, you know, jobs that they've done, their ratings, uh, you know, ratings, you know, what's in their studio, uh, all of that's, you know, there for the taking. Then there's the exchange of uh, services. And so it could be a product or a service. Um, it might be purely online, like, like an Upwork or a Fiverr, it's a digital service or a voices, 
or it might be what's sometimes called O to O, online to offline. I start online with, with Lyft, I call for my ride, and then it shows up offline, right? Or I start online for, with Grubhub or Seamless, and then the meal actually shows up offline. Um, and then the last one would be the exchange of currency. And I use the term currency specific. I'm not saying money, although that could be that. It's what most people think of. And as a pl true platform, you actually have to enable commerce to happen. And that might be capturing the payment up front, processing the payment, and paying out that service provider or that um, you know that that supplier, if you will, on uh, for work well done. Um, if it's one of these kind of creative, uh, let's call it content platforms, YouTube or Twitter, even um, then the currency is actually more social currency, and that would be gathering likes and and you know favorites and even kind of ratings and reviews. And so it's these four components that make a platform successful. And the absence of any one of those um, almost devolves into just purely a directory. You know, you're not really facilitating interactions. It's just to kind of go glean information, but the actual transaction or interaction happens elsewhere. It's like the platform covers all of that. So, uh, you know, again, that that's, that's a, I think a great way to think about uh, how to structure the key components of a business, especially a lot of services businesses are trying to move into reinventing themselves as a platform. Um, that's how I would think about it. And uh, having kind of built it and stumbled upon those and then reading about it in a book and over a weekend, I'm like, oh my goodness, that could have saved me a decade right there and what, then. What do you think is the, what do you think is the number one thing when somebody's building a platform that people don't get right out of those four items? Is there one that stands out more than others? You you probably um, you probably don't appreciate the need to have supply and demand. All all marketplaces, um, and I use that term platform marketplace a little interchangeably again. Um, they're going to be either supply constrained or demand constrained, and if you don't know which one it is for you, um, you're probably going to be you know you know, servicing and building up the wrong side for too long. And so, you know, case in point, um, you know, I actually had a friend who was one of Uber's first 50 employees. And I mean, there's tens of thousands of full-time employees and all that's, that's early on, <laughs> very, yeah, early, very on. early on. And he, um, his job was to actually go city to city to get uh, drivers and once they got enough drivers, he basically launched new cities. And once they got just enough drivers that they immediately uh, changed gears to, he would place these cards. It was almost like business cards in hotel, uh, like uh, front desks. And it would just say like your first ride free up to 50 bucks or whatever it was. And that's just to get this flywheel going, the flywheel of network effects. And you know, you have to know when, when do you have enough supply in order to, to change? And then you got to go uh, all in on the other side. So knowing what side's constrained, I couldn't, it's not prescriptive. It's different for every, it's not to say, oh, well, it's always the demand that's constrained. Sometimes it's the supply. I mean, Airbnb for a long time had a hard time having enough people willing to open up their doors and welcome in strangers, right? Welcome in new guests. And so you know, it will, it will vary depending what business is, but if, if you don't get the people in the marketplace using it and both supply and demand, um, you actually can have 
negative network effects, not where it's self-reinforcing upwards, where you're getting more and more and more people. Um, you know, an, an example might be, you know, the installation of the first fax machine, you know, not useful. The second fax machine, useful. And third and fourth <laughs> and fifth. But at some point, people started throwing these fax machines out because like, why do I need a fax machine? So that's now negative network effects where, you know, every time someone gets rid of one, the remaining people who have fax machines, it's less valuable than it once was. So you have to be constantly investing in that positive network effects where you're growing your base and doing so in that, that kind of equilibrium fashion. One last point I wanted to, to bring out, because uh, this was an interesting, an interesting point that I thought we should touch on. Um, you said that you can easily, com not easily, you can compete with larger players by simplifying. Now, this is not just platform specific, but I mean, this is a great lesson. So talk to me about that. I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, HubSpot. Now, this time of year is all about change. Whether your teams, your systems, or your Q4 to Q1 shifts, a CRM platform is a critical tool keeping your business connected throughout all of that change. And HubSpot, it's constantly working to make its platform more connected than ever before to help you with that change with brand new features. Get into details about what makes your customers tick with custom behavioral events. Track site behavior and understand your customers' buying habits all within the HubSpot platform. This is built-in intent data right into HubSpot. And if you're looking to find more ways to keep your data clean and have a centralized system, the all-new Operations Hub Enterprise gives you the ability to curate data sets for all users, meaning even faster and more consistent reporting. Learn more about how a HubSpot CRM platform can connect your business at HubSpot.com. Well, you know, I mean... The let's 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 talk about you know the definition of of strategy right and which is this might sound incredibly academic I've had the great um, experience of uh, doing some executive education as well um, over the last couple of years and um, this definition's kind of stuck with me of strategy which is arguably one of the most you know used overused terms and it's it's not a vision it's not your values. It's, it's, it's not employing best practice because that's what everyone else is doing. Strategy, uh, in short, is choice. And it's the, it's the um, interaction of uh, the, you know, the integrated choices that a firm makes, like a business is going to make, that differentiate it from other players in the industry to deliver long-term financial results. So the integrated set of choices what are the choices that you're going to make as a business that are different than someone else? And that can, you know, we talk, we're talking about simplification. If the, you know, big brand co in your space is really overcomplicated, they serve the high end of the market. Well, you go and carve out some other end of the market. Maybe it's a specific vertical. Maybe it's a sub segment of the customer base. And so, you know, again, for, for, for us at Voices, Early on, it was, um, I mean, Upwork and or Elance and Odesk, two big freelance sites combined become Upwork, this massive $5 billion, you know, um, you know, market cap, you know, business that's now publicly traded, but they do every category, right? They, you know, you can hire, hire a, and, and listen, we totally admire what they're doing. They're crushing it. 
but you can hire a, uh, you know, a, a musician to an electrician to a, a graphic designer to a virtual assistant and a web developer and so on and so forth. They have, you know, 70, 80 categories and like 8,000 skills that are all represented. So huge breadth. So how do you look at that and go, well, what aren't they doing, right? Or what isn't my big competitor doing that maybe I can take that slice and own it? And for us, that was, that was voice, you know, and voiceover. Now, I, you know, at risk of sounding like it was completely calculated and so forth, I think what we've d discovered over time is that that's held up to be true. We can... You know, I, I would much prefer to go really deep on an, one vertical area and own it as much as possible, becoming the, you know, domain expert, expert in this area. Again, kind of like the thought leader, again, term probably overused, but owning that space um, before you go, like go deep before you go wide is, is probably the simplest way to, to describe it. And so that's, it's like, you know, do something different and then cut out all of the non-value added ex, um, you know, activities that if you talk to your customers, like, do you appreciate that we do this? Um, you know, ha you know, have you run any surveys to understand what's working and what isn't? And we do those like quite periodically, um, both let's call them quantitative surveys to new customers, longstanding customers, and then follow that up with the qualitative interviews. Uh, we always ask at the end of the survey, do you want somebody to contact you to, to quickly talk through? And you probably get like five or 10% of people are like, yeah, actually, I'd like to talk to you about this and, and share more, uh, more in-depth uh, feedback. So and then, it's, those kind of, it's those kind of key findings that you can do that, that differentiate and figure out those places where you can get your business to be a little bit simpler. So you, so you simplify. And then I also want to... Um... I, there's actually, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're talent, you're dropping a lot of entrepreneurial knowledge and insight. So I feel like we could go on for, for a while. We may have to do a follow up at one point. So I appreciate it because you, you're, you, this is, this is just great lessons for entrepreneurs in general, outside of just, of course, building up platforms. There's some great lessons there. Now we're talking mm -hmm. about simplifying, you know, going, going deep versus going wide. Um, yeah. the one other thing that I wanted to, to understand is, um, and, and feel free to, you know, drop what, what voices.com is, is expanding into. And, and I want to first, yeah, you can, we can, you can promote yourself a little bit, promote like where you're going in the future, but also the mindset and the strategy and maybe some of that feedback loop that you use and incorporate into your decision-making process for deciding where to take the company after you've reached these miles, after like keyword, after you've reached certain milestones, when should a company look at the next shiny object and how did, how do they decide where they want to go next? So the, um, you, you probably, there's a couple ways to, to evaluate, like I've achieved, you know, looking when back from when I, you know, when you first started and go, Oh, I I've achieved that milestone. Okay. Now that I'm here, you know, w what is next? And, you know, I, I, I describe that as almost like, it's like walking towards the sunset or if you've ever taken a flight going west, you know, maybe to the west coast of the US or Hawaii or Asia, you're, you're flying into the sunset and it's like bright for way too long almost and you kind of never quite get there. And that's almost like the journey of entrepreneurship. You always see the glowing sun off in the distance and it's illuminating you and it's giving you direction but the more you walk to it, the further almost it kind of feels like it's going away from you, right? 
And so in a similar way, even when you achieve those milestones, you probably have to have this moment of pause to go, okay, I'm acknowledging you here, you know, probably too many of us don't stop to celebrate enough. Could be a small thing, a dinner out, you know, sleep in the next day, whatever it is, just, you know, appreciate yourself and your colleagues. But then you're probably going to wake up going, I'm thinking of the next thing, but how do I evaluate uh, those opportunities? And there is, you know, again, like I'm just kind of pulling some tools off the shelf here. One that's coming to mind is like this innovation, I think it's called the innovation ambition matrix, where it's like a two by two grid, right? Where on the, on the horizontal, you have uh, markets. So like existing markets or new markets. And then on the vertical, you have products, existing products or new products. And so you can kind of map this out to go, am I selling, am I going to stay in this comfort space of like my existing products and my existing markets? Or am I going to use my existing products, but find a new geography or find a new adjacency, some new audience, right? It's a new market. Or on the other hand, I've got this amazing market, this list of customers, what else can I create for them? What else can I sell to them? So I like using this markets versus products, um, two by two matrix to start to plot out where my ideas might fit and then see where it's kind of like, are some of them clustering together? Do I, frankly, do I even feel more passionate about moving into a certain area. Maybe it looks like it's a big opportunity, but I just don't have it in kind of in my, you know, soul to move into that area. It seems risky or a little bit off brand or off mission. So, you know, there is a degree of like subjectivity, but at least as a communication tool, that innovation matrix, you could circulate that to your board of directors, your business partners, your other members of the leadership or executive team as a way to communicate the ideas that are happening in your head and the natural extensions, uh, or sometimes we use the term growth vectors. I'm like, we could go in this direction or this direction. Um, and that, I, I, I use that actually as a communication tool. I found that really helpful just to move from the perception of being the entrepreneur with a bunch of ideas that seem disjointed. It's like, actually, I can fit them onto one page and here's my one pager. Now let's talk about, and then you can have, I think, a more meaningful conversation um, because there's logic behind uh, behind that. Very good. That's a great idea. I've never heard of that you, matrix you, before. I, oh, I, I, just... I, fig I figured with your your background in, 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 in the MBA, you would have probably seen something like that before. I, I've, I've heard of urgent, important matrix, like the Eisenhower. Yes. Like I've heard of all these other ones. This is a new one for me, the new matrix. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, no, hey, I mean, listen, I think, I yeah. think McKinsey Consulting's like, they, they run their business off of these two by two matrix because you boil really complex ideas. Yeah. down to something simple that and, and it makes you get out of your own head too it, it yes. makes you totally get out of your own head which is half the half the battle anyways yeah um incredible okay thank you that was very good i, I think that's going to be the social clip to be honest i'm i'm, I'm just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very useful that's okay fun. um before uh, i i want to pivot into some rapid fire are you still good for just a couple rapid fire questions oh, of course yeah okay. yeah yeah that's good okay cool um uh I wanted to, uh, I wanted to just get from you, um, you know, 
your future for uh, for Voices.com, as well as closing thoughts on some of the topics we spoke about for entrepreneurs, and then where do people reach out to you, social and website? Well, outside of Voices.com, I guess that's kind of an easy one to remember, but yeah. <laughs> other, other channels. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, kind of future, future of Voices and where we see it going is really this evolution from a voice only marketplace to a creative services marketplace. And when, you know, looking at all of those opportunities we were just talking about in kind of this innovation, you know, landscape and realizing that there are post, uh, sorry, you know, pre-production services and post-production services. Before the voiceover is recorded, you need somebody to uh, write a script. Sometimes that needs to be translated into other languages. And then the voiceover is recorded. And then inevitably afterwards, there's audio editing, maybe mixing in music. I might even want to sync that audio track to a video that I'm working on. So these these post-production services and clients are already, uh, you know, kind of almost like hacking our own, uh, our own site to figure out, I need these other complementary services. How do I get them done? So um, that is the best way to be pulled into a market as opposed to forcing yourself on it. And so that was happening at Voices. We're just really enabling it now. And that was through um, a bit of kind of a brand refresh and an, an expansion of enabling these uh, new categories. So that's uh, what's on my heart and what's up next. Um, the best place, if if uh, if any of that is of, of interest to those listening, you know, you can reach out to me. Um, probably the best place would be LinkedIn, to be honest, David Cicerelli, um, or looking at uh, you know the uh, on Twitter, of course, same same handle. And then following the company, uh, we've been fortunate to get the at voices on virtually every every social platform it's very good. Um, that's, that's, that's out there, which uh, which also, those are many other stories as well. To, yeah, to I'm sure that I told you there's more stories here. <laughs> <laughs> so those are, yeah, that, I mean, that, those are kind of the best best ways to uh, to get in touch. I, I love, to, love to hear about kind of the businesses that people are working on and, and uh, maybe if there's an opportunity that I can be supportive. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you, David. Um, okay. So let's do some rapid fire. Um, okay. So biggest challenge in your, in your personal life or professional life, what was it? How did you overcome that? So I would say the biggest challenge is that, um, you know, in, in, in all uh, humor aside about kind of marrying my first customer, um, I think it actually has been uh, working, living, eating, breathing, sleeping, um, thinking about this business with your spouse kind of 24 seven, that has been very challenging, also very rewarding. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think the, you know, the, the, the toll uh, that that's kind of taken just to be always on, um, without the space, even bringing it, uh, to, to the home, um, is I think we could have had better and healthier boundaries. Uh, which we we which we established over time. So that's kind of the, the challenge, but also how we solve this. And Dr. Henry Cloud, who's written a ton on uh, creating healthy boundaries, I think actually the book is just called Boundaries. Uh, you know, speaks a lot to this. He's a clinical psychologist. Of you need to create margin in your life. You need to create space, and that re that relates to yourself and what is acceptable behavior. It also relates to your relationships of what are the, like, how are you interacting with others and how do you create, um, to reuse the term, boundaries uh, of what is acceptable to, when is it okay to talk in, about business? And I mean, we have a silly thing right now um, where we just say, is it okay if I bring up this topic? And kind of asking permission to proceed um, mm -hmm. 
you know, be, before kind of uh, diving in. So I, I would say that's been uh, both the most challenging, but, and rewarding. I'm sure you hear that all the time, right? Well, th- yeah. So that's something that's a, that's a nuance that not everybody, um, not everybody deals because they don't all, all work with their spouse. But I think that that's an important, it's, it's, it's a superpower for some, but it's also something they have to figure out how to leverage because, mm-hmm. um, it can be a detriment too. It can, it can, yeah. it can be very harmful or it can be something that I know that, um, uh, I've heard it from uh, Michelle uh, Romanoff, uh, the what, Dragon Den, yeah. uh, yeah, you know, Clear, founder Clear of Bank. now ClearCo, now before ClearBank. She always yeah. speaks about how it's one of the the best things that she's done for her business is is you know her partner uh, Andrew. He's like he's heavily involved. Like I think he's co-founder, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and it's because they're so candid with each other. Like it's like it's absolute trust, right? Which is already the biggest hurdle in business. It's, mm-hmm. it's something that they never had to deal with it, that level of trust. And it just let them really just, you know, always count on the other individual, but at the same time, it's hard to shut off you're, yeah. you're always on, <laughs> right? Very good. Um, okay. Next one. Next question. Uh, a person, uh, it could be, I know there's been many, but a person who's been highly influential, impactful in your life, who was that? And what did they teach you? Uh, well, I, you know, one, you know, this, again, my, hopefully this doesn't seem too corny, but I'd actually say my father, I mean, my dad was, uh, and still is, um, you know, that, that sounding board, sometimes you all need to just have a conversation could be just frankly letting off some steam or saying again about a, a difficult situation, or, uh, he's arguably like the biggest champion. Like every time there's some like other article that he finds online about, you know, the industry or able to kind of connect dots and like, does this seem of interest to you? Um, he's been a huge, huge champion, um, you know, from the get go, that recording studio. I mean, he, 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 you know, helped me get into the bank and co-signed the first loan for, I think, $15,000. Um, I'm not, you know, I was like too young to kind of realize what co-signing a loan meant, but Really, he was like on the hook for that. And yeah. <laughs> looking back now, I realized, wow, he he really, you know, in his own way, stepped out um, to be supportive. You know, almost, you know, with, with me being so naive that I that um, I'm thanking him now. I guess is 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 the point. And I, and of course, I I do quite often. Um, but I, you know, I I think I think you know, despite not working in the business, but kind of more in the behind the scenes and listening and encouraging, you know, we, you know, we all need people like that. Amazing. Um, a book or podcast that you would recommend people check out? Uh, well, I mentioned, I mentioned Platform Revolution already. Yeah. Um, other good ones. I mean, big one around uh, strategy is, um, is actually uh, by Richard Rummelt called Goods, uh, sorry, Good Strategy, Bad Strategy. And um, the difference in why it matters is, I think, that is the tagline. And you know, he kind of describes that there's this like kernel of strategy. Uh, he has a bit of a different take. I said the strategy is really the set of choices that differentiate you. His his take is like strategy is really the response. It's still a set of choices, but it's a response to market conditions. Like the world is doing something, your customers are doing something. Um, how are you responding? They're always changing. So therefore you always need to be responding um, <clears throat> and be, be willing to evolve your strategy over time. Uh, and so I, I think that was um, one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite, it's actually an, I listened to it on audiobook, uh, and um, I probably listened to that once, at least once, if not twice a year, uh, 
you know, just in the background as you're doing your other things. So a uh, big, big audiobook book uh, listener. What would be uh, one thing you would tell your 20 year old self? <laughs> Probably have some great investment advice. That's, that's for sure. Of <laughs> what to invest in, what to not. Um, you know, one of the things we, we, we touched on earlier about, you know, uh, not taking no for an answer. There's, you know, no shortage of people who in the moment you're like, is this a good idea? And it's their own risk adversity that tends to dissuade you. But if you have the conviction yourself that you are so determined to move forward, I think there was a few times where I would have been more assertive um, and kind of pushed through. And um, that's probably, I would, I, would, I would encourage myself to kind of, you know, develop more confidence to, you know, almost like believing in yourself and your capabilities a lot more. Um, so it's, but you only grow that over time. So it's hard just to, you know, some things are learned and some things are best experienced. And so I think developing confidence is over experience. You can't just say someone to be confident and they are. You develop it because you've had a track record of success or a series of wins or flags that you've planted all around in the ground that you look back and be like, oh, look at that line. It's all lining up. Every one of those flags I planted at each one of those milestones. And then you look forward and, and extrapolate out and see like, oh, I can kind of see where that line of flags is, is going. And um, that was from a fellow named uh, Sean, uh, Sean Weiss who uh, wrote in a book that he uh, read to me. He was you know, a, a, really an advisor, an early advisor and, and um, subsequent an author. And I remember him writing in the cover of the book, Follow the Flags. And I'm like thinking, like, what does that mean? What does that mean? He's like, yeah, you plant these flags in the ground and you, and you look out into the future and go, are you following them in a certain direction? And if you got some weird flag that's way out in left field and you're like, don't worry about that one. It's, it's off the path. You know, it's like follow the flags that you've planted for yourself. It's probably going to be your best indication of, of success, you know, in, in the, in the absence of some, you know, other epiphany, there's usually some, there's usually some direction that's been established through your historical choices um, that lead to your future choices. And last question, what does success mean to you? Well, for, for me, um, it's actually the realization of the vision. I mean, I'm, you know, it, it could be, I just, en I just enjoy, you know, building, I enjoy creating, uh, helping to realize, um, you know, what I'm hoping to create is, is a creative marketplace, uh, that is, you know, informing and educating and entertaining you know, audiences around the world through, through the human voice, you know, people are needing to have that story be told. And so success is the, is the realization of that vision. And that's really, we're living it out every day, you know, through the talent that sign up and, and, and earn a living through the clients that are being able to actually have really important messages shared in the world. Um, so I, I find that um, rewarding on a, on a personal way. And I hope by extension, uh, certainly our whole team at Voices does as well. Perfect. That's all I got, David. That was perfect. Thank you very much. <laughs>I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know.
Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it. Each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash Clary. That's netsuite.com slash Clary. Hiring as a small business owner is a major pain. That's why LinkedIn is supporting today's episode. You need people with the right skills and experience, but finding them can take forever. It is incredibly frustrating to keep seeing candidates who just aren't a good fit, and that's why LinkedIn Jobs has been a game changer. Let me tell you a little story. We needed to hire a graphic designer, somebody with specific tech and software knowledge and the ability to truly understand our brand. And I started with all the usual job boards, and it's the same old story. Tons of irrelevant applications. No one's really matching my needs. I tried LinkedIn jobs and the quality of candidates was just on another level. People with impressive portfolios, relevant expertise. I finally felt like I was interviewing the right people. That's truly the power of LinkedIn's massive professional network. You're tapping into this huge pool of talent you simply wouldn't find on other sites. It's about finding those niche candidates you actually need. And with the right people in front of you, hiring becomes a breeze. Did you know that 86% of small businesses find a qualified candidate on LinkedIn jobs within 24 hours. That is how well their system works. Honestly, do yourself a favor and try LinkedIn jobs next time you're hiring. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash excellence. That's linkedin.com slash excellence. Terms and conditions apply, but it's definitely worth trying out. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information. But Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone, and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. 
Now, I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay. And what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch US-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text success, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. 